0: It is the final line in this small six-verse pericope that includes some powerful and pointed warnings to the people of faith from the prophet Amos. God's judgment will be, Amos says, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. So I have a good friend uh, whom I've known since we were both in our seminary internships in Colorado. We went to different seminaries, but uh, we converged to that region uh, where we met some 35 years ago. Boy, does time fly, huh? Uh, And like me, Martin has served as a Lutheran pastor for all of these years, um, although he has spent maybe upwards of half of that uh, serving out of the parish. Uh, He was assistant to the bishop in Nebraska, serving on the synod staff there for a good number of years. And uh, in recent years, he's leading an organization based in Tanzania uh, to improve, working to improve educational outcomes uh, there. So over the years, Martin and I, have had a kind of ongoing conversation related to congregational ministry and church leadership along with many other church-related uh, topics. As you can imagine, a couple of good friends both serving as Lutheran pastors would do. Um, we've attended church leadership conferences together around the country in places like uh, Albuquerque and Los Angeles, uh, in Los Angeles, we made a little diversion, and we were able to spend an afternoon with martin Martin's last name is Russell, and we spent an afternoon with his his aunt Jane, Jane Russell. Remember the movie star? Yeah, she was a wonderful lady, took us around, brought us out for lunch. Uh, uh, she was serving herself at the time uh, uh, in uh, helping some nonprofit that worked with children at risk children, I think I remember. but uh, that was fun. We've, we've, we've uh, been to church conferences in Chicago and, and Philadelphia. So Martin and I have developed a kind of shorthand uh, when we talk about these topics. And one of our recurring phrases, which we don't have to elaborate on and cuts through a lot of verbiage uh, for the two of us, is the phrase, happy talk. Uh, both of us have noticed over the years that there is a tendency in the church to put a positive spin on things. Uh, congregations will do this. Denominations do it. Uh, bishops, pastors, uh, councils, and so forth. Um, and it's, it's not a it's not a, a bad thing, uh, but it is a thing. So I'll give you a couple of examples of a happy talk as, as we tend to use it. Um, and I'll change the name of this actual congregation to... Uh, you know, protect the innocent, but we'll call it Happy Lutheran, all right? So uh, Happy Lutheran is an actual lovely, small, kind of at-risk congregation, kind of in a rural setting in an area that had seen uh, growth and development, but the church had not reflected really any of that growth in its own membership. So you had to read between the lines in their newsletter that they sent out each month, the paper newsletter that went out from Happy Lutheran, about their their Welka group. Now, Welka, uh, I'm sure probably at some point in the church's history had, had a Welka group here at Prince of Peace. Women of the ELCA, it's a kind of a parachurch organization, it, and local chapters usually operate out of local congregations, so it's still out there. There are probably... Uh, fewer Welka groups meeting active groups in in local churches, but there certainly are a bunch of them, it still exists. So that's Welka. Now, the title of the announcement at Happy Lutheran's uh, newsletter was Welka times two with exclamation points. And then under that it read, Happy Lutheran Church now has not one, but two Welka groups. Exclamation point. One meets on Tuesdays and one on Sunday afternoon. So, sounds like good news. I mean, it's a small congregation. Now they've got two Welka groups. Uh, I was serving a church nearby, and I was a little envious of that. I mean, we only had one. Uh, Now, in reality, there was there at Happy Lutheran a rift among the members of the Welka group. There was a disagreement about when they should meet and some other personality issues there until uh, a few of those members protested and decided we're starting our own welka group and thus uh welka times two the positive announcement in the newsletter that's happy talk okay so now you kind of have a sense of what happy talk is all about comes from a well-meaning place an effort to Be encouraging rather than despairing, especially to the wider community as you're, you know, communicating outward. But happy talk can also be used to avoid difficult realities or to remain in a kind of state of denial in some cases. And I've long held that this happy talk inclination shows up even in our approach to Scripture especially when we wade around in some of these Hebrew scriptures uh, we often refer to as the Old Testament, but don't get me wrong, happy talk interpretation happens often with New Testament gospel texts as well. I attended, when I served for 20 years out east uh, in the Philadelphia area, a text study with local pastors, and one day one of my colleagues was sharing with some enthusiasm that, Uh, It was his turn to lead, and he was going to be preaching on Psalm 137, which was part of the lectionary that coming week. And he was focusing on how, uh, even in the exile, the people of Israel, while they were driven from their own homeland out in the exile, that the faithful Israelites were determined to remember the homeland and their heritage and all that meant to them. And he was focusing on this verse within Psalm 137, "...let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth." If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So he was going to connect that to our own connection to our local faith communities and the ways we are gathered and fed and forgiven and sent and how while we're out there we need to remember the the community from which we have been sent and so forth. In my usual skepticism, however, I decided to read past the given pericope for that week. And I pointed out that the final verse of that same psalm says to the daughters of Babylon, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Yeah. You know, yikes. Uh, Well, today the lectionary gives us Two choices for our Old Testament, our Hebrew Scripture reading. Uh, and one is from Joshua, the other is from Amos. We heard a little a piece of each of them in the Joshua passage. The lectionary again tries to shield us from some of what Joshua interprets as God's righteous violence by skipping a bunch of verses. So, We jump past some really tough stuff and focus on some other stuff. So many preachers choosing to preach on this text this week of Joshua Joshua, will engage in what I call some happy talk interpretation of Scripture. God bless them. I don't mean to be critical. I've done it myself. Many a, a message based on this passage will be focused on this one little phrase uttered by Joshua as for me and my household we will serve the Lord. In fact that'll be the sermon titles at a lot of churches this morning. As for me and my household we will serve the Lord. The phrase was even the title of one of the books written by the beloved Lutheran pastor and author Walt Wongren. As for me and my house we will serve the Lord. It rolls off the tongue And there's something both compelling and comforting about it. So we see it on memes, we see it on wall hangings and needlepoint. But if we lift that phrase out of its context and we ignore the, the rest of the story because we're not comfortable with what we read there and because the phrase itself kind of serves our own purposes, then, well, that's what Martin and I call happy talk. So, maybe more preachers this Sunday will choose, if they're going to preach from the Hebrew Scriptures, that other Old Testament reading from the lectionary today, from the book of Amos. And we heard the whole pericope here this morning, the whole six verses of this reading. And it gives us another wall-hanging verse. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Just beautiful. Powerful, poetic imagery. This phrase echoes through history, and it should. So we see it on banners, in church sanctuaries. But that verse also sits in a context. It is the final line in this small 6th verse pericope that includes some powerful and pointed warnings to the people of faith from the prophet Amos. God's judgment will be, Amos says, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. I mean, I, 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 I've been blessed to travel and bring groups to Tanzania for well over 20 years now and every single time I've been to Tanzania, I've seen a lion and, you know, you, you're in a vehicle, so you're okay, you're protected. Uh, but, but you don't expect to turn around after seeing a lion and then see a bear. You know, I go up to Ely a lot, you know, and up there I'm, it's a common to see black bear and you want to keep your distance and so forth. I'm not sure of anywhere in the world where the two exist together. Maybe there is some place where lions exist with, where bears, but it exists here in, in the book of Amos. It's as if you're running from one and you encountered the other, and they're both uh, scary animals. And then even worse, and it's a good thing my wife Lori is traveling this morning and not sitting here up front because she doesn't like even the very thought of snakes. I'm not allowed to really say the word snake out loud. I mean, you know, we walk on this riverside trail almost every day with the dog. It's paved, and, you know, the garter snakes, it's getting a little chilly, so they come up, and they like to lay on that path. And I always see them before she does, and it's just I can't wait till she does see it because it's such a moment, you know. And then I always go and pretend like I'm going to pick it up, and she threatens to leave and all that. So uh, so that the picture that Amos point, uh, p- paints for us here, you know, you go into the house you know so you're safe you're in your own house it's so ca- you're so you're feeling so relaxed and casual that you lean up against the wall and there in your own house you're attacked by a snake it's terrifying terrible Amos also had room in those previous five little verses to describe what God thinks about the fancy worship services that people hold while the poor And the oppressed are ignored. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. I felt bad that right after that was read that Paul had to start singing. I mean, uh, it, it begs the question. In our approach to our faith, to our scriptures. Can we be honest? Can we look at all of it? Can we be honest with ourselves? Can we be honest about our communities? Every community of faith has what we might call God stories that help connect the present to the past. And it's always tempting to romanticize it a bit and see things mainly from our own perspective. Boy, did I love it when this was this way and that was that way. Author and theologian Debbie Thomas points out that the trouble with our God stories is that they are both beautiful and broken, both essential and dangerous. In the Joshua reading for this week, the Israelites exchanged dramatic God's stories of their own. Vivid narratives of their understanding of their ancestors' encounters and engagement with Yahweh. Choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua challenges the people. Whether the gods of your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The truth is that the stories Joshua and the Israelites exchange in this passage are painful for modern readers to deal with, or at least they should be, whether we skip them or we don't. They include terrible descriptions of plagues and drownings and curses and genocidal conquests and While we celebrate a God who protects his children, they also describe a God at times as tribalistic, as wrathful and violent. When the Israelites answered Joshua's challenge with a decision to serve God, they based their decision on a God story that makes me cringe. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land? Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. All the people in the land were driven out? Maybe it sounds familiar. How do we faithfully, but respectfully and honestly share our own God's stories? How do we untangle? Beauty from brokenness in the stories we listen to, and the stories we tell. The challenge isn't a new one. The ancient rabbis who studied the Scriptures, who studied Torah, confronted difficult texts in Scripture that they couldn't reconcile with the God they knew. One of their approaches was engaging Scripture through an ongoing process called Midrash. A vast body of interpretive literature even written into the margins of the Scriptures as they studied. Midrash asks questions. It fills in gaps and offers thoughtful counter-narratives. And, and ancient Israelites use their faithful imaginations. In one example, the rabbis are considering the story we heard referenced in the Hebrew text we read. The the crossing of the Red Sea when Moses is leading the Israelites and the sea crashes in on Pharaoh's armies behind them and drowns them all. And they wondered, did the rabbis, how could they reconcile the drowning of Pharaoh's army with the character of the merciful God that they had come to know. And one midrash written in the margins offers that while the Israelites celebrated the angels found God weeping. And when they asked why he wasn't celebrating too, God responded, some of my creatures are drowning in the sea and you want me to sing praises? Stories matter. More importantly, as Nigerian author Adichie puts it, many stories matter. Because while God is in each of our stories, God will never be contained in any of them. The God who sings on one side of the Red Sea mourns on the other. The first time I met Martin, I was uh, at an intern and supervisor uh, regional cluster meeting. So interns came with their supervisors to this meeting, uh, and then we were divided so that we could speak openly and get uh, support from one another. So the supervisors, the pastors, all went to one location of this church we were meeting at, and all of us interns gathered in a separate location. We got in a big circle in this room, and we took turns sharing a little bit about our situation, how the internship was going, how we were getting along with our supervisors and so forth, and I think there was a lot of happy talk going on in there while uh, people were sharing how it was going for them until it came around to me, my turn, and I stood up and I said, my guy is crazy. I mean, I barely made it here alive. He drives like a maniac, and my office at the church is in a literal interior closet, and he keeps telling me to start a youth group, but there's only Twelve people that come to the whole church as it is. And across the circle, Martin, we hadn't met yet, perked up. And so began a 30-plus year friendship that so often involves discussions around the realities faced in the church. During that internship in Denver, I became... Close to a, a family, it was a bilingual church in a predominantly Mexican neighborhood. And one day, I saw a little toddler in diapers walking, toddling across uh, Colfax, a busy thoroughfare, I went and went scooped him up. And one thing led to another, and became very close with this family. Four young children; the older girls were twins, 11 years old, and. And I'd try to help their mom through the, the benefits process and get food and deal with landlords and other kind of less than safe situations at the little duplex subsidized apartment they live in. And one night as the year was progressing and I was beginning to think of how I would be leaving before long, I remember leaving their house, and it just was a particularly chaotic night, and I remember sitting on the front step, and, and I'd come to love them like, like siblings, and I remember just crying, and, and thinking, what chance do these kids have? They would come home from school every day and come over to my office at the little church in my closet, and and we'd spend so much time together. What chance do they have? And I had this overwhelming sense at that moment. Rather than raging at God, who I could have felt like was not concerned and not present and not helping, I had this overwhelming sense that God cried with me that evening for a broken system, fractured by racism and Poverty, addiction, mental health. The God who sings on one side of the Red Sea mourns on the other. Today those kids are parents with children of their own, even grandchildren. They are thriving, accomplished, and faithful, and they're full of their own God stories. And the church is woven through all of them. We can, we should, honestly recall the whole story in our own lives, in our nation, in our faith communities, even the broken parts. Because in the waters of baptism, in Christ, we are claimed and forgiven and all of our stories are being redeemed. This is a promise. This is good news. Amen, I thank you again for participating in what is an ancient uh, practice, gathering for worship, whether you were able to make it here in person or you joined us online. Uh, We gathered around the, the welcome and the reading of scripture and the proclamation and the singing and the prayers. And every time we do, we're able to be honest. We should be honest about the stories we share and about the stories we tell. Uh, I speak a lot about context around here. It's important to keep things in context and all that we do as God's children is held in the context of what happened here for Ezra. We are the gathered, claimed, forgiven child of God. It is in that context that we now go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.